0: You're listening to the Galatians, Spying Out Our Liberty in Christ series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Father Lord, I thank you for allowing us to be here this evening. Lord, I thank you for the fact that we've already been able to sing praises about who you are, about the God that you've been to us, that we can depend on you every day. Lord, that you are a refuge, that you are a high tower, that you are a strength. Lord, that you take care of your children. God, I pray that as we look to your word this evening, we'd realize that this is our Heavenly Father speaking his loving words to us. Lord, the right response to your word is is obedience, is to be humble before it, and to try and live it out in our lives, God. And so I pray that we would spend this time not just hearing and learning, but um, seeking for ways that you will change us into the image of Christ. We love you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a kid at the dinner table, I often remember my mom saying things like, sit up straight, shoulders back, chin up, just look me in the eye, have good posture. And as a kid, I mean, we we're taught that posture is important. And I'm amazed now when I think about my parents teaching us about posture because I, I mean, I find there's. So many things to teach your kids and so many things you're worried about with them, posture just isn't always that high in the list. But I think we understand that in society it is an important thing. If people were to walk into an interview, you know, if you had two candidates for an interview and they both had you know similar resumes, and the first person walked in and they walked in and they had their shoulders back and they looked you in the eye and they spoke with confidence and, and they just carried themselves well, they had good posture, I think you would think well of that person. If the next person walked in the office and it seemed like all of life's mysteries were found in the carpet in front of them, they were just trying to to figure out what the carpet was teaching them the whole time, and they, they couldn't, you know, sit up straight, they were slouching, if that was their posture, I think you'd really have a hard time thinking well of that person, even if their resume is similar. Why? Because posture is important. And it's not just important in how we carry ourselves every day. If you've ever played sports, you know that posture is very important when you play sports. Uh, We went to my parents, my parents, I want to say cottage, but it's not actually a cottage, it's a trailer, and they're building on that property eventually, but um, we went there this past weekend, and we were working with the kids, trying to teach them how to play baseball. And it's amazing, when you put the baseball bat in their hands, at least Avery's first response was to look at the pitcher and hold the bat like this, like straight in the air. (laughs) What do, you, what do you think is going to happen here? <laughs> I mean, you're hoping that I just pitch it well enough that it hits the bat and, no. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. And so you're constantly telling them, no, you've got to get low. You've got to be ready to hit the ball. You've got to get your leg back. You've got to have good posture, right? I mean, it's important in sports. I'm going on and on about this, this posture thing. You're probably wondering where I'm coming from. Well, the sermon is entitled, A Grace-Formed Posture. Because a posture is not just your physical stance. Yeah, that's part of the dictionary definition of a posture. But the dictionary also defines posture as a frame of mind affecting one's thoughts and behavior. It's their frame of mind that affects their thoughts, how they're thinking, how they're processing things, and it affects how they're behaving. It's their overall attitude. So that's the dictionary definition. I thought, you know what, having a grace form posture is exactly what Paul is talking about here because he's trying to get these believers to understand that their posture in their life has to be one that's been created by grace. It has to be one that has come with a right understanding of the grace of God that comes through faith alone and not through works of the law, so that they live their lives from that position. Their posture toward life is that of understanding the gospel is by grace through faith, and so they live out that that truth, what they believe. So everything that I'm going to talk about from this point, it, it, it follows this idea of having the gospel, transform how we think and how we behave, how we hold ourselves, carry ourselves in this life. For the past five months or so, we've been making our way through the book of Galatians. And we've already seen Paul establish what the gospel is. In chapter 1 and 2, he established his authority, and he established the authority of the gospel that he brought. Chapters 3 and 4, he established the fact that the gospel is from the Word of God, that it's proved by their experience, it's proved by logic, it's proved by the Old Testament, it's proved by stories of people like Abraham in the Old Testament. I mean, over and over again, chapters four, 3 and 4 are clearly what the gospel is and the fact that it's been proved theologically by Paul. And it's almost like we're at this point, as we enter into chapter 5, where there's a pause, and he's given us all of this truth stacked up on itself and so we're just we've got all of this theology and all of this foundation laid and he's about to start building on it he's about to say this is what it means for your life now there are so many wonderful things we can get from just going through that study but i gotta tell you i've been excited through this whole series to finally get to chapter five to finally get to the application the therefore all of this is true the gospel is true this is how it works Therefore, this is how we live. And so this is exactly what Paul does as he enters into chapter 5. At the end of chapter 4, Paul summarized his whole argument with an analogy. He he analogized part of the Old Testament, a familiar story with Hagar and Sarah. And remember we talked about who's your mama? You you had to figure out who your mother was. Was it it Sarah, who was the mother of promise? Was it Hagar, who was the mother of of slavery? So we decided that... It would be better to be a child of promise. And so chapter 4 concludes like this. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. This is, this is where we're at. If you understand the gospel as it's presented in Scripture, as Paul presented to the Galatians, you understand that we are not children of the bondwoman. gospel is not, it's not works, it's not bondage, it's not law. The gospel is freedom. We're not the child of slavery. We're the child of the free woman. Therefore, chapter 5. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Here it is. What do we do now? Now that we've gone through all of this truth all the way along, what do we do? You stand fast, therefore. You stand firm. This is actually a military term. It's like you dig your heels in and you, you stand for something. You, you believe in it and you cling to it and it becomes the foundation from which everything else comes forth. You stand fast, therefore, in the liberty. And the, the phrase here is literally translated, for freedom, Christ hath made us free. And so we're standing fast in this freedom and the Bible's saying that, that Christ made you free for freedom. Why would you stand fast? Because he didn't free you to be put you back into his own bondage or back into the bondage of the law. He freed you so that you would be free. We need to dwell on this for a little bit. Because I think that, that the world and our culture and even ourselves sometimes, we tell ourselves that Christianity is not about freedom. You ask your average teenager what Christianity is, and, and they would tell you about rules that you'd have to keep if you wanted to become a Christian. They tell you about what you have to do. And and essentially, they're telling you this is the bondage you have to be under if you want to be a Christian. And this verse says, for freedom, Christ has made you free. He's made you free so that you'll be free, not so that you'll be in bondage. The freedom that, that the world is going after, that they believe in, that they want so badly, that's not real freedom. Christ set you free so you'd have real freedom. And so the gospel gives us true freedom in Christ. We are to stand fast in that freedom and we are not to be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So it's this, it's this command to stand fast, but then a warning and make sure you don't get yourselves entangled again with the yoke of bondage. What is the yoke of bondage? It works. It's the belief that somehow you can work your way or do a certain thing or keep a certain law in order for you to get to get yourself to heaven, to make yourself pleasing and right with God. So, right away, we're commanded to, to stand for something and to stand against something. There is this truth that Christ has set us free, and then there's the command to stand fast and to stay away from the yoke of bondage. Let's get into verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, and, and Paul's saying, Listen, listen up. Hey, let me get your attention. I, Paul, an apostle, the one who brought you the gospel, I, I, Paul, that I've described as myself, the authority that I have in chapters 1 and 2, I am now saying unto you, this is the whole point of everything I want to tell you, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. You're going to be circumcised? Christ won't profit me anything? I mean, this is kind of strange, and he's going to give a series of warnings here. And, And if you're like, circumcised, I don't even know what that is. Ask pastor after the service. (laughs) <laughs> he'd be glad to tell you. But the funny thing is, Paul went through all of this, you know, first four chapters, and he's been defending what the gospel is, right? And the attack on the church here has been that in order for the Gentiles to be truly saved, they have to keep the law of Moses, and part of that includes circumcision for males. That, that's part of the whole keeping the law of Moses. And so we find in Acts chapter 15 that the Judaizers, this is the lie they were spreading in Antioch, and it's the lie that had spread to the the churches in Galatians. So this is what Paul, this is the whole reason he's writing this letter, is because there's these false teachers teaching a gospel that says you must keep the law of Moses. And for Paul, he symbolizes all of that in this phrase, being circumcised. The whole idea of a work salvation, the whole idea of keeping the Jewish law, he summarizes here in being circumcised. So he says if you're circumcised, if you decide that you're going to keep the law of Moses and that's going to save you, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to the whole law. Paul says, listen to me. If you say that that somehow circumcision, somehow keeping the law is going to save you, just recognize this point. If you're going to take that part of the law and apply it to yourself and think that that's going to save you, Understand, you have to apply the whole law to yourself. You can't just pick and choose which laws you're going to keep. That's not how it works. It's not like I can say, I want to become a Canadian citizen, and so I'm going to keep law you know, 1 and 2.4 and 6.8. Those are my three favorite laws that Canada has. The rest of them I'm not planning to keep, but I do like those laws, so I'm going to keep those ones. It doesn't work that way for the, the, the Gentiles. They can't say, okay, well, this is God's law, I'm going to pick circumcision and maybe I'll keep a couple of the holy days and that will save me. Mm, You're going to be a debtor to the whole law. It's a big deal. Verse 4. Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. This is a verse a lot of Christians have trouble with. If you believe in eternal security, you believe Christ. Died once for sins, and that you're saved by grace through faith. One time you're born again, and then He keeps you by the power of God. I mean, the, the Bible teaches that, right? You go to Romans eight, you go to John ten, you go to First Peter. I mean, over and over again, the Bible teaches that that we're saved by grace, and that once we're saved, we're we're saved. I mean, it, it's not a, a position where we're just trying to attain something. It is. It's done. It's completed. I am already a citizen of heaven. But then, how do I? take all of that verses and all of what the Bible says about salvation and square that with what we read here. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. And what I want to do, before we just move on and try and explain this, I want us to understand how serious Paul is about this. The type of language he's using here. I mean, if you're circumcised, you're dead at the whole law. Christ is profiting you nothing. He is of no effect unto you. You are fallen from grace. Pretty scary thoughts. Now, there, there are a couple ways to understand this, and certainly we don't take one verse out of context, and we say, okay, this is, I'm going I'm to attach my entire belief about eternal security on to verse 4. In fact, if you follow Paul's argument from the very beginning of the book of Galatians, is that he's, he's saying none of our salvation depends on us. So nothing that we can do can merit our salvation or demerit our salvation. We we can't gain it ourselves, we can't lose it ourselves. That is his whole argument. And for most people who believe you can lose your salvation, they would say you can lose your salvation if you decide to murder somebody or if you decide to, to live in unrepentant sin for an extended period of time and you don't care what the Bible says. And so, this version of losing your salvation is, is the opposite of that. This version is saying, I'm going to do lots of good things. And then I'm going to lose my salvation. That's, that's kind of what Paul is against here. So Paul's argument all along doesn't flow with the idea that he's saying you can completely lose your salvation in verse 4. Okay? But he is using very strong language to warn. And there's two possibilities here. Either he's warning the believer of something and that is God's way of keeping the believer because the Bible in first Peter five says we're kept by the power of God. If you want to look at Hebrews chapter six, it's another difficult passage, but this you know, this could be a hypothetical, you can't lose your salvation, you can't actually fall this way, but God is using this command to keep us in line, to keep us going the right direction. Okay? I think more likely what he's talking about here is you're you've lost the benefits of grace. You've lost the benefits of Christ in your life during this time. And so, as a believer, I mean, these people, their desire is to grow to maturity. And so what they think they're doing is they're adding circumcision and they're adding Jewish law and all of these things are going to make them better Christians. And Paul is completely against that. And what he's saying is, if you think that adding circumcision is actually going to benefit you, you're going to lose all of the benefits of Christ. You're going to lose all of the, the earthly benefits of growth and maturity and relationship and right, right relationship with God right now. and so that's what's at stake here. You're fallen from the graces of this life. okay So I mean they there are difficult verses, they are tough verses, but I think it's really important for us to get that Paul is so adamant that these believers, and he's called them brothers all throughout this letter, that they get that. They are saved by faith and not works, and as soon as they decide that they're going to put themselves through circumcision, they are following another gospel, and so none of the temporal benefits of grace apply to them right now. Okay? They will not grow. They will not have that right relationship with God right now. All right? It's probably really confusing, and I've probably confused more of you than I've, I've helped. Yes, Sony said yes. <laughs> That's really encouraging. Um Okay, so maybe maybe this will help. You've you've left the sphere of grace. You've left the the grace posture and the grace life that God has designed for you. And so it doesn't affect your eternal standing with God, but it affects your current relationship with God. So now your relationship with God, you are basing your relationship with God on your works. And, And God hates that. He doesn't want any Christians to look up to God and say, this is what I have to offer. He wants all of us to come to God with empty hands and then to, to serve and love and, and please him out of gratitude for what he's done and not because we think we're meriting favor with him. Does that help at all? Okay, I, I think that this is what Paul is getting at here because very soon we're going to find all that the Christian is supposed to do but the reasons why we're supposed to do it. We'll see this very clearly in verse 6. Why do we love? Why do we serve? Why do we, um, how does our faith translate into action it does it because when we have faith in what he's done, it does change us. Faith that saves us is faith that changes us. And so our lives flow out of that belief rather than us believing we're going to get ourselves to God. As soon as we start believing we're getting ourselves to God, we are out of the sphere of grace. Okay, we'll move on. Verse 5, For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of of righteousness by faith. He says, This is how it works, folks. We through the Spirit, the Spirit of God that indwells you, the Spirit of God that quickened you, the Spirit of God that guides you and comforts you and empowers you and, and takes you along as, as God's child. He, he seals you to the day of redemption. That Spirit of God gives us hope. We wait for the hope of the righteousness by faith. It is the Spirit of God inside of us. It says to us, there's that hope one day that somehow I'll have the righteousness of Christ. Someday when I stand before God at the judgment seat, I will stand and I'll be righteous. I'll be declared innocent, free. This is the hope that comes only through the Spirit. If you are a person who is trusting in your own works as even a part of your salvation, you can't have this hope how can you ever say that you are good enough? How can you ever say that you've kept enough of the laws and that, that you know, you've done all the things that God would require you so that someday you have that, that sure hope? It's only those who are resting completely on Jesus Christ that can say, I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, because of Christ's righteousness, that someday I'll stand before him, not with my righteousness because I wouldn't have any, but with his righteousness. That is our hope. Verse 6, for in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which works by love. And this this verse, I mean, there's a lot of these Jews, these Judaisers, they would have hated to hear this verse. It's not about circumcision, it doesn't mean anything. And it's not even about uncircumcision. I mean, the point isn't what what you did and didn't do and, and all those things, they don't matter. What matters is your faith. And your faith, true faith, works by love. And that's what this is all about. And so all of these warnings are designed to remind the believer, to, to encourage the believer back to following a life that is based, that, that has a posture of faith, a posture that is formed by grace, and not by their own works, not by what they've done. So I have quickly three points that I want to give you. First one is this. If Christ has set you free, stand firmly in that freedom. If Christ has set you free, then stand firmly in that freedom. This is is the principle of the whole thing. There is freedom in Christ. It's amazing when you look at the world how much they speak about freedom and desire freedom. There's a song by Janice Joplin uh, wrote years ago called Me and Bobby McGee. She said, Freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. Nothing don't mean nothing. Honey, if it ain't free, now, now. And feeling good was easy, Lord, when he sang the blues. You know feeling good was enough for me, good enough for me, and my Bobby McGee. She's singing about freedom. Can I tell you something? Janice Doplin has no idea what freedom is. She um, overdosed on drugs, being free. Teenagers demand freedom. Freedom from the parents' rule, freedom from... All the strict rules that they have to follow at school, freedom to be who they want to be and, and believe what they want to believe, and, and it's not just teenagers. It's, it's the world around us that is demanding this freedom. We're obsessed with it. And the funny thing is, the whole idea of freedom, it's, it's, it's a really captivating ideal, isn't it? I mean, when I think of the greatest speeches that I've ever seen in movies, they're all about freedom. If you've ever seen the movie Braveheart, William Wallace gives this moving speech. He says, I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What will you do with that freedom? Will you fight? And one old guy says, fight against that? No, we will run, and we will live. And they're facing this English army that is just massive and and overpowering. They have no chance. William Wallace says, "I fight and you may die, run and you'll live at least for a while, and dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all of the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell your enemies that they may take your lives, but they'll never take our freedom." Seen the movie? You remember how powerful that? Our freedom, right? In the movie, it's, it's, he even says at one point, it's all for nothing if you don't have freedom. And, and our world is seeking after freedom. We, we think of political freedom. You know, we want to have free to vote for who we want to. We want economic freedom, freedom to, to build our businesses the way we want, to spend our money how we want. We want religious freedom to believe whatever we want. And, and the funny thing is, the Bible doesn't really give us a right to those freedoms. You know, I mean, I know they're, they're a great way to build a country. And the Declaration of Independence of the United States... I mean, it's, it's not a bad thing when it says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights. It's giving the impression that God has given these rights to us, and part of one of those rights is political freedom. But I can tell you something, that's not a right that God gave us. When it's speaking about freedom, it isn't speaking about political freedom. There are people all around the world that are Christians that will testify to that. It's not speaking to, about religious freedom. It's not speaking about physical freedom. What is physical freedom? Well, I mean, do people in jail that become believers in Christ, do they inherit physical freedom? No, they don't. They still suffer the consequences of, of what they've done. People with uh, disabilities and, and illnesses, I mean, they suffer. They have physical problems. They have physical freedom just because they came to Christ? No, that's not the freedom that it's talking about. We don't have economic freedom. We don't have all of the freedoms that we, we think I when we first think of freedom. So what is the freedom that he's talking about? If he's telling us that the whole point is for us to stand in our freedom, how do we do that? What is freedom? A man named Timothy George wrote these words. I think they help us to understand what freedom really is. Christian liberty was always grounded on the believer's relationship with Jesus Christ on the one hand, and in the community of faith on the other. Outside of Jesus Christ, human existence is characterized as bondage. Bondage to the law, bondage to evil, bondage to elements dominating the world, bondage to sin, bondage to the flesh, and bondage to the devil. God sent his Son into the world to shatter the dominion of these slaveholders. Now God has sent his Spirit into the hearts of believers to awaken them to new life and liberation in Christ that is Christian freedom. What you experience in your relationship with Jesus Christ, that's freedom. The fact that you can look to your eternity and not see condemnation because of what he's done for you, that's freedom. The fact that now you're able to to live and, and serve and love and please the God who saved you, that's freedom. All of the things that we think of as freedom when we just go freedom, I want to be who I am and think whatever I want to think and and do whatever I want to do, that's not freedom. That's bondage to yourself. That's bondage to the society around you. That's that's bondage to this world and and these worldly thoughts. True freedom is what comes when we embrace our relationship with Christ and all of the benefits that we get with that. It's freedom to do what we're designed to do, to love and to glorify God. And so we must maintain a posture of grace-formed freedom. Because it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. His desire for us is to be free. And if we're not living in the freedom, then the Bible there is saying that we're living as if Christ never died for us. If the law brought salvation, then what's the point of Christ coming? How is it changing your life? No, you should be free. We should maintain a posture of humility, of gratitude, and of assurance. And can I tell you something? As soon as we, I mean, you might not think this is a big deal. As soon as you develop any type of, I'm going to contribute to my salvation, the Bible says that you take on yourself a yoke of bondage and that you you have a posture of insecurity. You can never know for sure. And then you're either going to be prideful or you're going to be discouraged, you're going to be beaten down, you're going to be weary you're either self-righteous or you're self-defeated. And in the gospel, we have grace formed freedom. Number two, if Christ has set you free, don't get circumcised. That's his point. Verse six, circumcision is not anything. It's not uncircumcision, it's not anything. The whole point of this isn't circumcision. It's not a physical procedure, but it's the symbol of an approach to salvation. And if if we've been saved by grace through faith, don't drift back into that slavery. Don't, don't take on that old slave master. Don't go back to it. Don't be brought under the tradition of men. You know, there, there's too many people, they, they honestly, it's like they don't like to think. It's like God has given us the word, and he says, now take it and read it and love it and live it, and, and this is my word for you, and people say, I'd rather follow Joseph Smith. You know, I'd rather follow this, this man who, who's telling me I have to keep these laws and these traditions. We constantly are heaping upon ourselves slave masters, and it's so ridiculous. You're free. Christ is your owner. So live for him. How, how unkind is it to Jesus to say, yeah, I know you're my owner, and I know you've told me I have freedom, but I'd rather serve this guy who's going to put me into slavery. Christ has set you free and don't, don't go back to that works salvation. Don't live as though you've been saved any other way. Luke 18 has an awesome parable and it's a parable that when I look, think of this text I always I think of this parable. And it's the parable where you have two different men and one of them is a Pharisee and he comes and he comes to God and he says Lord I his prayer Matthew or Luke chapter 18 verse 11 the Pharisee stood and prayed thus for himself. God I thank thee that I'm not as other men are—extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. See, that is the the prayer of the self-righteous. Lord, thank you that I'm not that bad. Lord, thank you that I'm not like this other sinner. Lord, thank you that I do all these good things. Lord, thank you that I am me. He's praying to himself, and the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you, you see the difference in the posture? The one stands proud before God and says, God, thank you that I am who I am. Thank you that you've made me so great. The other one can't look up to heaven. And he, he's weeping, he's smiting, smiting his breast, and he's saying, God, just be merciful to me, a sinner. It's that, that grace form posture the one that recognizes that there's nothing in ourselves, that it's all about grace and all about mercy, that's the posture that we need to live from. Your posture should never resemble that of the Pharisee. So if Christ has set you free, don't, don't go back to the work salvation. Don't start looking up to heaven with pride. Live in humility. Live under grace. And Finally, if Christ has set you free, your faith will manifest itself in love. Galatians for in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision but faith with which works by love. I heard a, a, an interesting um, discussion this week, and it was two theologians, and one of one of them was saying, um, "How do you balance grace preaching, you know, grace to your congregation and then preaching responsibility?" And he said, "Well, when I preach the gospel, I want there to be some people in the audience that make this charge." if people believe what you're saying, they'll think they can do whatever they want to do. And what he's saying there is the gospel is so free, it is so outside of our responsibility and our own actions, that some people should be able to level the charge, not rightfully, but they should at least think, is he saying I can do whatever I want for the rest of my life? Now, that must be balanced. And this is how Paul balances that. He says, when you understand the gospel, when you understand all of the freedom that the gospel gives, you understand that that freedom is not to serve yourself, and it's not to serve lust or, or sin or anything like that. That true freedom is to serve Christ and to serve others. And so faith, real faith in the gospel, works itself out by love. You can't detach faith from love. If you believe that there is a loving God in the universe that created you, and created all people, and that he's given all people eternal souls, and that you're one person who has rebelled against God, and because of your rebellion, God sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. And that because of your faith that you've put in him and his finished work on the cross, because of that, you can be reconciled to God, you can be redeemed. If that's what you believe, that that God did that, and that's who you are, and that's who he is, and that's his amazing love for you, then how could you not treat other people with love, who God also created, who also have eternal souls, who, who Christ also died for. Faith, real faith, must work itself out in love. If we really believe in what Jesus did for us, if we really believe that, that, that this story is true, then it must work itself out in our life. We must be loving people. We must be loving neighbors. We must be loving fellow church members. We, we must be loving, you know, random people we meet. I mean, we need to love people because that's, that's our God. Our God loves people. So that's what his people should be like. All true Christian love is a manifestation of faith. You can't segregate the two things. Um, There's a story of a man named Jacob Jonker. And Jacob Jonker was in his field in South Africa, and he was roaming the field. It was after a massive rainstorm, and he was hoping that he would find something. I mean, he he was depressed. He had no money. He was... At the verge of just losing everything, so he's walking around the field and he comes across this this stone and it catches his eye it's a little glimmer and he he picks it up and it's huge and so he he looks at it and he, he cleans it off and as he's cleaning it he's just he's realizing what this this might be, and he can't believe it, but he believes he's looking at the biggest diamond that he's ever seen 276 carats. The Jonker diamond, true story. He found a diamond, and for three days he kept that diamond as close to it himself as he could. He protected it, right? He, he loved that diamond. He took care of it, and he sold it for a fortune. It's, it's, look it up, the Jonker diamond. For those three days that he had that diamond, can I tell you something? He, he protected it. I mean, he, he carried it close to himself. He made sure that nobody could steal that from him. And we don't view our freedom like he did that diamond. But our freedom is of infinite greater value. If we could see our freedom, what Christ has done for us, and the fact that we have relationship with him, that we have no condemnation, that we can serve the God of the universe, if we could see our freedom with just a little bit of the value that he would place in that diamond, we'd be so much better off. We need to understand what a treasure we have in our diamond Charles Wesley wrote the words, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That is exactly what we're talking about tonight. You are in a dungeon of your sin. God saved you, He quickened you, He He took you from that dungeon, He put you in His palace. Your chains are gone, your heart is free. And now you have the opportunity to get up and go forth and follow him. And foolishly, we far too often walk out of the palace suite back down to the dungeon. How silly that is. John eight thirty six. Jesus said, If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. So if you're free, stand firmly in that freedom. Don't fall back into religious bondage. Allow your faith to work itself out in love. Let's pray.